Welcome to machine learning. This week has been an interesting week for thought as I've been thinking more about startups and business and not so much about the technology because I understand that technology is only 5% of the problem. Even though you might think that um, the AI and our, uh, all these applied statistic methods so far are, are so critical. That's only from the world of being a nerd. But as far as business, they really don't care about the how you do it. Um, and that's kind of interesting disconnect because you know you're you're trying to solve all these complex real world problems. And they're not, they're not simple solutions. Sometimes they have lots of steps and require lots of uh, learning just to be able to, to do any, any work. However, what's critical is who's paying the bill. And that, that really becomes the issue. And so you can have a really great product and so forth and not have anyone being able to pay the bill. So how do you how do you get someone to pay the bill? Well, I, I actually have started to to really think about that as a as trying to you know understand the next opportunity, and that comes down really simply to do you have a process or a platform that can be used by companies in general, and so how do you build that platform? Well, you. You can do it the restful way. You, you build a series of structures and that, those structures then represent the complete workflow that you have on your platform. And so you see th companies like uh, LaborChart, EasyRand, and QuickBooks that are implementing these platform solutions and making available public APIs to access the all the work that's being done on those platforms. And so you get this new level of functionality that exists as almost as a service. Uh, and so integration with that service is the job of the programmers and the analysts and so you begin to interact with these different platforms so you know you may look at a company and wonder how many platforms is the company interacting with well they may be interacting with hundreds of other companies or vendors that are providing some degree of functionality that they don't get either from their ERP or within in-house development and they want this increased capability that is offered through the platform. So look, analyzing things from a platform stance is really critical and I've been thinking about right now I have 28 uh, domains of, of knowledge or areas where I feel like that AI could be useful and we've talked about some of them in these AI startups and so the AI startup mentality is starting to affect me where I'm starting to look at things that I've 
done in the past where I worked for different companies and thought about, looked at their processes. And even though some of the processes are very long, they have a very simple underlying goal. And maybe the goal is to salvage equipment. Maybe the goal is to make sure that expenditures do not exceed budgets. Maybe the goal is to uh, ensure functionality of a facility. Maybe the goal is to uh, make sure that people are paid in a timely manner, employees are paid in a timely manner. Maybe the goal is employee retention and job satisfaction through training and recognition. But there are various goals that every company will have, and that depends on the management and the politics within that company. And so, you know, fitting one company over all companies is not the approach. But the idea originally of object-oriented programming was polymorphism. In other words, everything could be constantly changing. Your object could be constantly changing to meet all of the possible contingencies that you could have in business where you could have certain cases where it, the, the base class had to... Um, be handled in a polymorphic manner dependent on the situation. So in one situation, it would need to behave a certain way. In another situation, it need to behave another way. And this is actually kind of perfect for AI because it can learn all of the different rules and then it, with a high degree of accuracy, be able to apply those rules to the situation. So depending on the situation, it can respond to those rules. And so in, in essence, you kind of create a AI operating system where you have a, a, a certain condition, what rules apply? You have another set of conditions, what rules apply? And so, you know, it could get so complicated that even just analyzing all the rules and making sure the rules are current could be uh, the job, you know, of a full-time employee. And, you know, there, there could be payroll rules or rules on, on discounting or rules on collecting on invoices, etc. And those type of things um, could be justified, justifications for using AI in the accounting world. Well, and we've heard, too, that AI wants to replace all of accounting with automated systems. So how would it do that? Well, a lot of accounting is categorization. A lot of business is categorization. You know, how do you apply your account, your billables in the right expense accounts? And then, you know, setting up your chart of accounts to, to, um, to match the business structure. So you have business units and then from business units you might have locations and from locations locations and business units you might have uh, areas in certain geographical locations. So you might have these sub locations. 
things might be changing. One set of billables might change at a certain time of the year to um, one group and another type to another group another time of the year. So maybe one part of the year you're in full production, another part of the year you're in maintenance. And so those different cycles of billables need to be applied differently. So there's, there's a lot of fluctuation that's constantly going on with the county. And then your taxes. But ultimately, like I said, the, all systems have some simple things. Like, for example, maybe the whole point of accounting is to pay your taxes, to pay your salaries and to pay the taxes. Maybe those are the two critical things that accounting must be able to do. If you, if you, if you came down to it, what must accounting be able to do? Well, they must be able to make payables or no one will work for the company. They must pay for. They must pay their vendors, and they must. Otherwise, you wouldn't uh, be able to to get work done. So you need vendors and suppliers, and you know, you build your inventories. But I guess in inventories, you could almost argue that yeah, you know, there's some inefficiencies that could occur in inventories where if you didn't have a particular part. Um, you could place an order for it through procurement, and and then you might have to wait. But then, what would be the cost of waiting? You know, maybe if it's a critical part and it breaks, you know, waiting a week for that part to arrive could represent uh, a large drop in production. So you're you're w- more willing to have those critical parts inventoried so that if you need to replace them, they're available. The low line of, that kind of line of thinking may be part of the accounting system. And then you have, you know, you have the owners who want to know how much profit they're making. So those are, but is that really critical? Could, will an owner uh, walk away from a company because they don't know what their profit is immediately? And does it really matter if, they understand profitability from a day-by-day basis, or maybe they have to understand it by uh, overlapping years, or maybe they're even looking at it from a standpoint of multiple projects, like in the case of construction where, you know, you have multiple concurrent projects, and what you're looking at really is the request for billables and how how that flow is occurring. So as long as you're getting new projects, new work, that and growth, then you're happy, and you understand that you know when the project is completed, then you're going to uh, get your billables. And so you have this retention of money that you keep, kind of as an insurance policy or or uh, a down payment or good faith that allow you to to um, receive that money up front. Well, so one thing that I see when I put these these uh, domains together is that there is these underlying simple things that the AI system provides. Like for example, the for sales, it might be the underlying principle might be, to qualify the customer, find out qualified customers, 
and number two, determine what their interest level is and what their problems are, and three, providing possible solutions that will meet the needs of the customer. How could they meet the how could they use the existing products and services to meet the needs of the customer? I've, I've actually had that happen before when I've worked with uh, salespeople and explained, you know, what I wanted. And they would have, they said, well, what about if you tried this and this? And, and all of a sudden it kind of clicks, you know, you're, you're like, oh, I never thought of that. Well, that's the kind of moment that AI, you want to have with AI is like, oh, I never really thought about that but yeah that seems like that could work and when you have that I think that could work there is a, a moment where the brilliance seems to spark and that uh, that becomes exciting and if you could do that for millions of people and then people start realizing that that feature is, is cool then they'll start using it I remember the first time I used Google uh, you know, there was Yahoo, and there was AltaVista. There was all kinds of different search engines. Home. Uh, I think Microsoft was maybe starting theirs. I think Bing came quite a bit later after Google. But when Google first came up, I was at college. And that would be in the 1990s. But I was in college, and uh, I entered in some text. Uh, technical, actually, that's what I was looking for because it was known for its ability to to find documents on the web that were technical based. So I do a I did a search um, using Google and was able to get some information immediately, and, and it was good information. It was like, wow, it found. Uh, popular, you know, it would use the popularity ranking, and it found that information quick. And I, so, over the years, I started using Google a lot when I was doing consulting to find information, and, and I really liked it. Now, I also remember Stack Overflow, and what was interesting was Stack Overflow, and I never thought about it, but it, you know, it was. But it was because uh, I, I never thought about using Wiki. But that was one of the things that they did is they used a platform. They used a platform to post their question and answers. And so when they first came out, their question and answers were pretty good. And I was actually doing lots of question and answering and writing technical articles at that time. And um, But I wasn't thinking about like going across all these different domains and trying to establish a knowledge base across multiple domains. I had certain domains that I was really good at. I was good at Oracle. I was good at C. I was good at C++. I was good at uh, Visual Basic, C Sharp. And now I'm getting really good at Python. And I was thinking about, you know, why didn't I capitalize on that? At one time, I was really well-known for a lot of my questions and my solutions. Um, and I had lots of people that were reading my technical articles and stuff. And, and to 
today, you know, what I'm doing is building a platform on YouTube and podcasting because everything has changed. And, you know, maybe in the future, Stack Overflow will be replaced by Copilot. You know, Copilot now, um, instead of having to go read the Stack Overflow and look at all the possible solutions, so you have like maybe. You know, I don't know. Sometimes there are multiple pages of solutions for one question. And, and people, depending on how much they want to explain their approach, some of the solutions can be have lots of uh, verbiage and very descriptive and uh, real philosophical in terms of the con- concepts. And so really what you're doing, you're investigating in do when you buy into Stack Overflow is philosophy. You're getting a philosophical discussion on a technical matter. And there's a lot of purists too that like to go out there and and if you write the code in a way that isn't a purist form, then they like to challenge you and they're kind of belligerent. And I always flag those guys as unfriendly. Um, and sometimes they have some good points, but other times it's like, who cares? Unless you can prove to me with a time in that it the performance is improved by this purest form, I really don't care. I want I'm going after performance and readability, and so uh, there can be a lot of syntax sugar, is what they call it. But then on the other hand. You know, sometimes you could argue, show that writing something Pythonically is runs more efficient. So then, why doesn't Python itself refactor your code to a more efficient form? It, it, why can't it learn, look at your code, and say this code can be actually refactored, and it will run twenty percent more efficient? by refactoring the code because of the way it's accessing memory, the way it's uh, having to, to, to do access memory and or certain APIs are slower than others. So, you know, if efficiency is the goal, then why can't the computer analyze your code, look at what the outputs are or the results, and then, like an expert programmer or assistant, make a suggestion on a new approach. Uh, so maybe it likes to use transform because transform keeps all your rows and it does a lot of its aggregation or functions using transform versus apply where you're passing uh, data. And maybe instead of using a function call with a map, it says, oh, it's much faster if you use a lambda function, anonymous function, because it uses less resources. So it attempts to come up with solutions, maybe using lambda functions. So, so again, you know, you're, the challenge with any code piece is that you can keep
working, reworking it, refactoring it until you get something that is either more readable or uh, performs at a better efficiency. And that's one of the big things even with PySpark is they had to write their own Python code, which is PySpark, because they had to take advantage of parallel processing. So then the question is, is wait, why didn't Python pick up with PySpark and immediately port all of their data frames so that it was uh, automatically usable by multiple clusters? And so, you know, we have now this new language called PySpark that's based on Python, but it's a deviation from it. So now you have to learn the two languages. And whereas PySpark, was Python is so popular, it's interesting that it cannot pull the resources to create the universal language that would run across um, multiple hardware. And so it doesn't handle... You can do parallel programming in PySpark, but you have to you have to know a lot about um, a async I/O, and then when you run it, you have to you know you have to adjust your code to the usage of GPUs, and there's just this constant uh, tweaking that you have to do when it comes to massive parallel processing computing, and I think. I think that is um, a mistake that um, that eventually Python, if it's going to survive, has got to move to massive parallel processing. So it needs to like, and it needs to be done seamlessly. No one wants to have to, to start passing a hundred different parameters to work with all kinds of different massively parallel processing hardware. It needs to be done automatically and that could be the value of AI is AI could be that underlying operating system per se that is used uh, when handling hardware. So it's making all these decisions on how to partition to the cluster, how to create tasks and, and uh, invoke those tasks, and you know how to do the transformations across the clusters, across the different partitions, do the filterings, etc. And so PySpark might be the, the replacement for Python in the future. And so they might say, well, hey, you know, let's just make a universal language and, and that it seems to handle this massive parallel processing and let's let's kind of standardize it and let's 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 demarcate PySpark and demarcate Python and create a new language called Python Universal or something. But uh, you can see that, you know, the emergence of Python is kind of an academic language uh, 
similar to like I would say C++ was an academic language kind of I know it emerged in a laboratory but I think it was AT&T or something and and I remember when uh, I was working with C and C++ you know that there was a group of um, programmers that I was working with and they were writing in C and their code ran like 20 times faster than the object-oriented code and it was amazing you know it was like well why program in object-oriented just use structures and C code because you're going to get the the real fast performance and no that was in the day when if you wanted even faster performance you would write to the hardware in assembler code so you'd write your macros and then you incorporate those macros into your C code. So you're still working in the digital world. And, uh, you know, trying to get that efficiency. And that could also be an area where AI is useful too, is that you know, it understands that you're working in the digital world. We haven't moved away from binary zero and ones. And so everything gets converted down into these zero and ones and uh, is running running those that data set. But now what happens when quantum computer becomes more available? Now you're you're working in a qubit where it's a, both a zero and a one and or a zero or a one. And so now your languages are going to, you know, be, be specific to quantum computing. And, uh, and so there, there's going to be this language bridge that we're constantly battling as things become more complex and more capable. And you want to have a wide diversity of capability in the language and that, and that becomes then a challenge when you don't have a universal language because now all your libraries that you like to use cannot be used, used and then you have to basically rewrite those level of functionality in those libraries in the new language so that you can use that, that uh, previous functionality. So we're, we kind of like will go forward, but we have to recreate the past. And I saw that when, you know, OpenGL became available. Originally, it was on Silicon Graphics machines only, and you had to pay a licensing fee to Silicon Graphics, which we did and at the university, and then we were able to, you know, write code on Silicon Graphics machine. And it was pretty cool. I'd have all these students show up, and they're all excited to learn how to use the Silicon Graphics machines. And... Then uh, over time, uh, OpenGL was ported to Windows, and it was free. And so we we moved away from the Silicon Graphic machines, and I started teaching them how to write Windows programming, and then how to bring in the OpenGL libraries and headers. And then we started writing our code in Windows. So originally we were writing them in uh, C, 
and we're running it on the Unix machines, and then we switched from the Unix machines to the window machines. And now you were living in the world of Microsoft. And so, you know, what will happen with Microsoft is as, as hardware starts to change, you know. Right now, I, my machine doesn't have a really powerful GPU, so whenever I run any NLP, it takes a long time for it to, to process and train. And, and, uh, and any of my machine learning, you know, the epics are not quick. But what happens when GPUs, the next generation of, of laptop, is going to have a powerful AI GPU in it, maybe 16 gig of RAM and uh, and capable processing, you know, teraflops of data. So now when you run it, you know, you're running really powerful sets of neurons that you're running, say like you're running uh, millions of neuron train sets and you're running across big data and you're using terabytes of data um, instead of gigabytes and so your your processing speed has to be in parallel so you're you apply your queries and you're sorting and you're aggregating and and you maybe instead of using one core you're using a thousand cores or ten thousand cores or something so again you, you know more of the same stuff I guess you could say it's all you know partitioning and and, uh, and offloading that work to cores but at the same time with all that you're 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 still pondering uh, that you know yeah we're able to get more work done quicker and it is better quality work true because you know the the computations are producing better results you're getting better understanding of your data, better understanding of your business. And, and those type of things add value. So, you know, you look at that co- that powerful machine and you're like, wow, that that adds a lot of value. You know, it pays my, my salary, but it's adding lots of value to the company. And that, that trend will continue on for decades. So, you know, looking at how to add value will be important um, over time. Well, I'm watching this uh, new series called Manifest, and my wife and I were enjoying it. It kind of has uh, <coughs> it kind of has the government as the evil villain, one part of maybe a secret clandestine part of the government, where they kind of reverse the alien autopsy and they're torturing the passengers of uh, well, I think it's flight eight two eight. And then the the passengers seem to have like this higher level 
consciousness that's connected to an alien intelligence. This alien intelligence has moved them five years into the future um, through some sort of time travel. And then, but the current, even the current existing science is like, no, that can't be possible that they went through a wormhole because their current understanding of the energy it required to form a wormhole would be near infinite and it wouldn't be very big. And so the, the shearing force to go through a wormhole would tear up the, would have tore, tore up the plane. So they're like, no, we're, that's not possible. The plane couldn't have passed through a wormhole. Well, and then what about the Philadelphia experience where they did create a bubble didn't go through necessarily like through a wormhole, but they went. They created a bubble. Oh, it's all fiction, right? So um, gets people excited about the idea of time travel. But suppose you know, suppose that there was time uh, time travel. So just play along with the kind of the sci-fi line of thinking. And you did go five years into the future, and then you had this connection to the alien intelligence. And the alien intelligence is a, a benevolent, friendly consciousness, and it seems to be interacting with all the passengers of Flight 828. So they're all getting these subliminal messages, you know. And the end result is it's solving problems. Like they found two girls that were abducted. They found uh, one of the stolaways. He was hiding and he was hurt and he needed help. They found him. And so, but they, they don't really understand the context of the messages. They get a message and they think it means one thing but it doesn't. So they, they kind of wander around trying to figure out what they're calling telling them but they're they're connected into this higher level consciousness so they're all hearing the same thing and they're all coming from different parts of life and social interactions and relationships and and so some of the characters are more likable than the others and you can kind of see how one will betray the other like there's a husband-wife, I'm almost certain that that husband-wife reunion is not going to work out. They just, they just don't seem to be sparking. Whereas the new boyfriend is more interesting to the woman uh, than her husband, but she's tried to, you know, re rebuild her relationship with her husband. But she, her husband was before she left was kind of on rocky terms they weren't very happy with each other and, and uh, so there's a kind of that dynamic that's going on um, and then they have the daughter in the family who was the father's who was on the planes 
had a really good relationship with him and and now when she um, after he, he was gone for five years she was really determined that he was still alive and but then she kind of transformed and became kind of a rebel and just followed her own self pursuits and then got into a lot of trouble and the new man was someone that she could relate to and trust so she trusted him more than she actually trusted her father even though her father and her he was trying to reunite with his daughter and, and uh, so there's just kind of this disconnect between the father and daughter and they just don't seem to understand each other and the father makes some classic mistakes like he thinking that he can buy back his daughter's love she shoplifts and then he doesn't enforce any consequences he just says well my mother let me off when I made a mistake and I'm going to let you off you get a free one you know that's like what that doesn't teach any consequences that's not going to work so that daughter is going to lose a lot of respect for her father. And I don't, I'm not saying that he had to be mean to his daughter. But he didn't enforce any consequences. And so she's like, I can continue on this behavior indefinitely. He doesn't care. And so there is this lack of respect that goes on between the father and daughter. And you can kind of see that it's, gonna, it's going to end bad for those two. I'll be surprised if they, if, if the husband and wife stay together and the, the family doesn't break up. So it's classic dysfunctionality that comes as a result of, of error, I guess. And, you know, it'd be interesting if you, you looked at this from a, put the AI to the social uh, movie and, and asked GPT-3 what's going to happen. And GPT-3 would predict based on what it's could learn from all the script that up to this point, you know, where you are in the movie at this point in time, that it, if it would predict that things were ending bad and that the daughter didn't learn consequences and, you know, the, that love itself does not um, <coughs> help people change. They themselves have to experience the pain of their consequence so that they decide that they don't want to feel that pain anymore <coughs> and they change but love can be very supportive as they make that change but to take away those consequences is terrible that's terrible and I don't know why our society believes that I was uh, with some friends last night and we were went to a restaurant that they particularly like <coughs> and there was a lot of there was a bar there and I was looking at well, I went to pay the bill and it was a very expensive bill but I was looking at their bar and they had all these fancy bottles and colors and they had the bartender and she was making these really fancy exotic drinks and people were really excited very excited to be drinking and they they didn't seem like 
you know, it was anything wrong and they, you know, they were relaxed and their inhibitions were down and, you know, some, one, one couple was kissing and very, very intimate and the others were sitting there, you know, at the bar drinking and there was one man, he was all excited, he ran up to the bar to get his drink and, you know, this really is not my environment, um, but it was, I was telling our friends that I said, boy, I tell you what, this is where, this is where they make their money is at that bar. Because I guarantee you that those drinks were not $5 drinks. Those were expensive drinks that they were being made. And, uh, well, then one of our friends, he used to drink and he was saying that when he was in Lubbock that he, uh, they would go to the, you know, play at the bands and people at that time, there was prohibition. So that tells you how old he is, but there was prohibition and they couldn't, couldn't drink, but they could bring their own alcohol. And so they bring that in and they would mix the drinks for him. And, and then <laughs> he would get his own free drinks from other people's alcohol. So it was kind of, uh, uh it was kind of funny that way. Well, anyway, I I just feel bad because you know I I, I do the uh, twelve steps with for my daughter who had an addiction problem and and I hear people who are recovering alcoholics tell about their experience with alcohol and and I think to myself how do people survive this I mean the it's so glamorous and it's so popular and they're, you know, very excited about the alcohol. But, you know, alcohol by itself can destroy you because it becomes, it has a, you know, effect on the brain. It's a brain disease. It, it affects the dopamine levels in your brain. And, uh, and you, can get, you can get addicted to it and uh, it can destroy your life. And so um, I had an uncle that died from, alcohol and uh, he, he became sober but the alcohol affected his aorta and so he had an aneurysm when he was out hunting and he died he died quickly from that and uh, just has there's so many dysfunctionalities associated with alcohol it's just not worth even touching 